My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Parting is such sweet sorrow. This is, of course, from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. It is a phrase which is very fitting for today, a day in which we can imagine the emotional state of the apostles, of the holy women, of Our Lady, on the day in which they have to say goodbye to the physical body of the Lord. We are here contemplating our Lord present in the Blessed Sacrament, in his body and blood, soul and divinity. What would it have been like for those first followers of Christ when they realized that they would be unable to see the face of Christ again in this life? when they watched his physical body ascend into heaven. The separation of loved ones is always difficult. This is especially true with the death of a loved one. The saying goodbye is hard, especially when we don't know when we'll see them again. I think this was especially the case in wartime when spouses had to say, had to say goodbye. Many didn't know, many women didn't know when their husband would return from the war, if they would return from the war. Right? There was great uncertainty. Shakespeare's phrase, parting is such sweet sorrow, is perhaps especially true when it comes to the ascension because it is a, it is a goodbye on the part of the apostles that is truly good. It is sweet. In fact, the gospel describes the event with great joy. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, raised his hands, and blessed them. And as he blessed them, he parted from them and was taken up to heaven. They did him homage, so they they worshipped him and then returned to Jerusalem, cum gaudio magno, with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. And so unlike perhaps other separations, which are marked by pain and sorrow, the apostles, their first emotion is one of joy. Gaudio magno. Why this, why this joy? What's going on here? Because, Lord, they were being separated from you. Right? Their body, your body was being taken away from them. Were the apostles glad to be away from the Lord? No, they were not. St. Thomas asks this question in the Summa. 
when discussing the event of the ascension in the Tertia Pars, question 57. And he says, although Christ's bodily presence was withdrawn from the faithful by the ascension, still the presence of his Godhead is ever with the faithful, as he himself says, behold, I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. And so unlike perhaps that, that scene of, I don't know, the typical movie scene where you have someone getting on a train, right, and the train is pulling away, and the loved one is, is running down the platform, holding onto the hand, and then finally they have to let go, and she's waving her handkerchief and sobbing. All of which is understandable, right, because, again, sometimes these goodbyes were very dramatic, where they didn't know when they would see each other again, if they would see each other again. Contrast that with the Gaudio Magno of the Apostles. Why? Because Christ's bodily presence is ever with the faithful in a new way. The presence of his Godhead is ever with the faithful. Behold, I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. This is the reality of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us. And so we can say, in a way, that that the ascension is a goodbye. It's a farewell. And it's truly a good bye. It's something very good. Jesus even tells us that he must go if we are to receive the paraclete. To receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus must return to the Father. And so this is a good thing. Apparently, goodbye, the etymology of that word, I didn't realize this, but it's from the late 16th century, I guess before that, people just said, bye. <laughs> no, so it comes from the contraction of God be, God be with you. May God be with you was a typical farewell. And so over time, that evolved into God be and then goodbye. To, to, to shorten the phrase and to make it more like other phrases that already existed, like good night or good day. But already the word goodbye, it has this, this inherent in it, this, sen- this sense of, of God is with us. May God be with you. God does not abandon us when Jesus ascends into heaven. Quite the contrary. Christ ascends body and soul to God's right hand. But in a spiritual manner, he still remains with his faithful. And so, Lord, when you say goodbye to the apostles, it's like you're saying, I'm departing in my body, but I still remain with you. And how does he remain with us? 
He remains with us in many ways. One, principally through the infusion of the Holy Spirit, which comes to the apostles 10 days later in the upper room at Pentecost. The Spirit of Christ is always with us to the end of the age, but also through the gift of the sacraments, the sacrament that we are beholding here right now in this tabernacle. Lord, your presence truly here, your physical presence in the Blessed Sacrament. In the Eucharist, we taste and see the goodness of the Lord. We eat his body and his blood. You'll remember how on the road to Emmaus, or in the story of the road to Emmaus, when they arrive at their destination, Jesus sits down with Cleophas and his friend. And at the breaking of the bread, our Lord vanishes from their sight. His bodily presence gives way to his sacramental presence both of which are real, both of which are true presences of the Lord. And so, Lord, we want to imagine the state of the apostles on Ascension Day. They would have had this great joy, great joy because they see the power of Jesus. They see your power as you ascend and take your throne at the right hand of the Father. The great joy because they know that you are with them still in this new and powerful way. Joy because they expect the Holy Spirit to come just as you had promised them, just as you had explained to them over the last 40 days. But also, and and St. Josemaria points this out, this emotion of melancholy, but a melancholy because they feel like orphans. They feel like they've been orphaned. This happens when we lose our parents. There is a sense of, of our identity, in a sense, being unjointed because the ones who have given us life are no longer with us. And this can be devastating, especially when someone is young. It's a a child orphan, right? The, the, The tragedy of that. Why does St. Josemaria say that the apostles felt orphaned? Like they had lost something so dear? Well, because they had, right? For the apostles, for the holy women, for the first disciples, Jesus was the master. Rabboni. They had given their lives to him, and they had established with him an incredible friendship, much more dear than any, than any ties of blood. And all of a sudden, he's gone. He's vanished from their sight. He's no longer with them. And so, of course, they miss his voice. They miss his eyes, the twinkle in his eyes. They miss his smile. They miss the the, the feel of his skin, the touch of his hair. They miss the way he walked. They miss all these mannerisms and gestures and physical manifestations of the person. 
of the person of Jesus. And so we can say in a sense that they, they, they feel this sadness, right? this sadness of separation. And so it's a day of mixed feelings. Parting is such sweet sorrow, a sweet sorrow. All of this can lead us to examine ourselves to see, do we have that level of friendship with Jesus? Where in a way we can relive this day just as the apostles did. Do we know him as intimately as they did? Are we dealing with him on the same terms? It's interesting how the ascension into heaven has has various dimensions. One of them, we could say, is royal. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Right? This is a royal procession. I know in, in, in Europe there is a greater appreciation for this, especially at least in, in, in England. I have a brother who lives there in London. All the pomp and circumstance of, of royalty. And, and it is a, an incredible thing. I mean, just tune into a royal wedding right? and you can see all of the... the the fanfare, the the really what is a, more than a thousand years worth of of culture, the entrance of the king in power, right? The taking of the throne. Jesus is seated on the throne. We know that he will come again in power. Right? The Son of Man will come on the clouds. St. Josemaria, in his meditation on the ascension, describes the, the reception of Christ in heaven by the legions of, of, of the angels. We can imagine them saluting their king. And it's what we see in paintings across the ages. The ascension is an expression of Jesus' power. He enters into his, his rightful kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. We see him often blessing the people as he ascends, holding a scepter in his right hand. All of this is an expression of royalty, of the royal dimension of Christ the King. But then there is also, we could say, a priestly dimension. And this priestly dimension, I think, perhaps gives us more consolation. We rejoice with Jesus as King who goes back to the Father. But it is Jesus as high priest that consoles us and helps us to realize that he's still with us. The second reading for today's Mass is from the letter to the Hebrews. And really, it's here that we have the most extended reflection on the mystery of the ascension. Christ did not enter into a sanctuary made by hands, He did not enter into another physical temple, a copy of the true one, but rather heaven itself, that he might now appear before God on our behalf. Not that he might offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters each year into the sanctuary with blood that is not his own. 
If that were so, he would have to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. But now, once for all, he has appeared at the end of the ages to take away sin by his sacrifice. And then later he says, we have a great priest over the house of God. What does this mean? This entry into the true temple, right? This is a, a referral to that moment when the high priest, once a year, would enter into the physical temple in Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the people. And this had to be done repeatedly. And in a sense, that sacrifice was never sufficient. There was never a conviction that their their sins were forgiven. There was a hope that that would be true. According to the letter to the Hebrews, on the day of the ascension, Jesus enters into the heavenly temple, the heavenly sanctuary not made by human hands, in order to offer the sacrifice of himself to the Father for all eternity, once and for all. Not a sacrifice of bulls and oxen, but the sacrifice of himself. And so the ascension, while it is very kingly, it is extremely priestly because Jesus, who is both victim and priest, offers himself to the Father. He, in a sense, shows the trophies of his victory. He presents to the Father his wounds. Wounds that have not been erased by the resurrection, but that Jesus has wanted to keep. You know, we tend to think that the Paschal mystery, right, that we recite in the Mass, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We tend to think that it reaches its climax in the moment of our Lord's resurrection, Easter Sunday. But you could say that in reality, it really reaches its pinnacle today on the ascension. And when we think of the sacrifice of our Lord, we think of Calvary, where Jesus literally pours out his blood and his life for each one of us. This is the supreme sacrifice. We might also think of the Last Supper, which is a sacrifice. The Holy Mass is a sacrifice in which Jesus pours out his body and blood under the appearance of bread and wine. But we have to remember that this is all one reality. So it begins in the upper room. It's carried out on Calvary, but it doesn't stop on Calvary. In the resurrection from the dead, and then his ascension into heaven, Jesus takes that body, he takes his body and blood, that body and blood that has been crucified for us, and then glorified for us, He brings that human nature, his human body, into the heavenly sanctuary where he offers himself as a sacrifice to the Father, not only on earth, but now also in heaven, not only in time, 2,000 years ago, but for all eternity. You could say that the dialogue 
between the Father and the Son, which is the eternal love between the Father and the Son, which is the Holy Spirit, is now centered on those wounds. That their dialogue is the dialogue of, of the, the, the ultimate sacrifice. And this brings us consolation. This brings us consolation to know that though Jesus is now physically in heaven, his wounds stand up for us. His wounds act as a kind of defense for our salvation. And that his, his wounds in heaven are the source of our, of our sacramental life. Each of the sacraments that we, in a sense, feed upon and depend upon for our interior life, for our interior growth, especially confession, and communion. All of that is possible because we have a high priest and because that high priest has entered the heavenly temple. And so we rejoice. Today is a day in which we rejoice. The catechism describes this very powerfully. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself which is, of course, a quote from the Gospel of John. The lifting up of Jesus on the cross signifies and announces his lifting up by his ascension into heaven, and indeed begins it. Jesus Christ, the one priest of the new and eternal covenant, entered not into a sanctuary made by human hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. There, Christ permanently exercises his priesthood, for he always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. As high priest of the good things to come, he is the center and the principal actor of the liturgy that honors the Father in heaven. Jesus acts as high priest and principal protagonist of this liturgy of heaven that that honors the Father. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. By the Father's right hand, we understand the glory and honor of divinity, where he who exists as the Son of God before all ages, indeed as God, of one being with the Father, is seated now bodily after he became incarnate and his flesh was glorified. Being seated at the Father's right hand signifies the inauguration of the Messiah's kingdom, the fulfillment of the prophet Daniel's vision concerning the Son of Man. To him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus, the high priest, Jesus, the king, who now sits at the right hand of the Father 
in his body. The body of Jesus is now reigning over heaven. And yet, with all of this, which is so much reason for joy, we still feel that that tinge of sorrow, that melancholy that the apostles would have felt. We also feel like orphans because we want to see Jesus face to face. We desire to see him in his sacred humanity, to experience it once and for all. We have this longing for heaven. All of this is very good. And orphans, they feel this loneliness of having lost their parents. But at the same time, the apostles who felt this loneliness realized the church is now my family. Jesus is gone, but I can still see consolation in my brothers and sisters, and most especially in my mother. Who is it that most resembles Jesus Christ physically? Mary of Nazareth. And so the apostles go back to the upper room and they wait the coming of the Holy Spirit in the presence of Our Lady, which is the most natural thing to do. They gather around the one who most resembles the Master because they miss him and because they want the consolation that Mary brings. And so we also turn to Our Lady, Christ's mother and ours, And as our mother, she teaches us how to appreciate the presence of Christ all around us and within us. She teaches us this new spiritual presence of Jesus. And so she helps to, in a sense, to stoke our joy, to recover our joy. That joy in the unfailing presence of the Lord. We are in the month of May. It's also a good time to examine how goes our Marian devotion. This devotion which leads us to Jesus, that pushes us closer to the Lord. Have we been faithful in those little resolutions we've made to be more affectionate with Mary? We can imagine those unforgettable days of what's called the decenary, right? The 10-day waiting period between Ascension Thursday and Pentecost Sunday, how the apostles would, would have lived those days in the Cenacle, how the holy women, the disciples, everyone was waiting with great anticipation for what Jesus had promised. Perhaps some of them began to doubt. Perhaps some of them didn't understand all that well what Jesus had referred to the paraclete, the advocate, the consoler, what is this? Well, they would have gone to Mary. They would have asked her questions. They would have sought in her a kind of source of strength, of consolation, as they were, in a sense, reacting to the trauma of, leaving, of, of losing Jesus, but also the great expectation of receiving the Holy Spirit.
I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.